Okay, we are going to start the book of Romans, and, and this is going to be a little bit different than what we've been doing. I, I want to give a little bit of insight into how we study the scripture and how I look to study the scripture, and hopefully it'll be something that is useful for you as well. You know, I... I I think I take it personal sometimes where I've heard people talk about the way I teach and I need to get over this, but I have problems because I take what people say very personal and sometimes it gets to me. And when I hear people say, well, Sam just gives talks, he really doesn't teach, he doesn't give sermons, it's really more relational than, you know in-depth, things like that, it bothers me because I do spend time, I do study, I don't just like, yeah, so here's what I think it says, you know, but I probably need counseling in this way, in fact, I'm serious, I probably uh, could use some because I can't get over some of those things and they affect me, but I wanted you to see kind of the, the road that I look at when we go in and to study the scriptures, and the book of Romans is one of those books that has impacted who we are as followers of Christ probably more than just about any other book. If you were to go into a bookstore and look into like a Christian bookstore and look at the volume of information, Romans would probably be at the top. Gospel of John might be right there with it, but the book of Romans is one of the premier books in the New Testament that has affected our understanding. And so as we get into this book, first of all, we realize that what we have is the text. Thank God we have the text. What we don't have is Paul's diary or his notes or his footnotes or what he was thinking when he was writing these things. We just have what he wrote. But what we can do is look a little bit into his theology and how that would affect the things that he wrote. And so that's kind of what we're going to do today. Today we're probably not actually even going to get into the book. We're going to just talk about the writer. Because if we understand the writer, we'll understand a lot more about what he was writing. And that's true for anyone who writes. If you get an idea of a person and their perspective, then you're going to have an understanding of how they say things or why they say what they say. And so we're going to look at what's called Pauline theology. What is Paul's theology and where is it coming from? Because a lot of t people have taken Paul and they've put him into a model that would be more classified in a Reformation model. They've kind of taken Paul and just placed him in the 16th century. And so a lot of the things he say are the things that they would have been saying. And they just try and frame Paul's works into what they already have believed and thought about. And so Pauline theology has been lined up to that Reformation model. And so, and the same thing with the book of Romans. Now we're going to talk about human beings, their sinfulness, to talk about God's grace, his salvation in Christ, about justification, sanctification, final redemption. We'll talk about church ethics, the sacraments, those kinds of things. And people have tried to take this book and follow that Reformation theological model as if it's going to fit everything that Paul says. And so they, they take the first part of Romans. Yeah, here's talking about sinfulness. And then we're going to talk about 
you know, God's grace, salvation. But then you have these interruptions throughout the book. It's like, wow, that was a tangent, especially chapters 9 through 11. It's like, whoa, where did he go there? And people say, well, he's just trying to make some discourse. You know, he's just trying to make a point, but he kind of got off his topic, and then he gets back on the topic at the end of the book. But I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is that Paul has something in mind that fit very well at the time that he was writing. And what he is trying to convey is very important, not only for the time he was writing it, but for us as well. You think about the faith and what happened through God's people in that first century, and it's incredible. There has never been as wide a spread of evangelism, if we'll call it that, than there was at the first century, where what was happening in the lives of people became so powerful that it just burst out of them. And I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to relate And so we want to understand who Paul was and what's going on. Because is there a better way to organize these theological concepts? Is there a better way to, to look at how this is taking place? And so what we first want to do is look at a historical context. I got my whiteboard. I feel so happy. And so as we're looking at Romans... We want to look at a historical context, and not just of the book, but of Paul. We want to look at Paul's historical context and what was going on in him. We have enough historical background to be able to frame the proper context for Paul and what he is doing theologically. And so we want to look as... Paul just coming from a Jewish background. Is he just rethinking things in terms now of Christ and the Spirit? Is Paul just having this theological view where I'm going to take all the the Hebrew thought and I'm just going to put it into this Gentile world? Is that what's taking place? And to understand just the historical context, we also want to look at the world view. And a worldview is how you see things. And the worldview is something that you can't really argue with. The worldview is just how things are. The worldview is how you see through things, or you see things through your worldview. And so theology fits into the worldview that a person is in. The worldview is not what you look at, but again, what you look through. It is the height of arrogance, I think, that we assume that the scriptures were written with our worldview in mind. And so now when we read something, we see how it is in our life, and we say, well, that's what the author originally meant. And I think it's the same thing that happens many times where people will read the scripture and it's really coming from a Reformation or 1600s worldview. This is how life was in the 1600s when, you know, Luther broke free from the Roman church and all that was taking place, all those things that were important to them became the focus. And so those are the worldview that they look through. Well, that was their worldview. But what was Paul's 
worldview. That's what's really important. Not what our worldview is, but what was Paul. And again, worldviews are just the way it is. It's just the way it was, the way the world was at Paul's time. You don't question that because that's what it is. Theology, on the other hand, is out on the table to question, to examine in light of the culture and the worldview. Paul's theology, we want to put that out on the table and look at it, but we have to look at it through his world and the way he saw things. And that's what we've been trying to do or what I try to do with the scriptures. I try to see how was the scripture, what was the world the scripture was written in. We've done that with Genesis. At the beginning when I've been talking about Genesis and we went through the creation scenario, the the story that is given in Genesis wasn't meant to be a scientific discourse. And so we in our worldview think of things scientifically and we think that we're under uh, just attack with the evolutionary theory and so now we try and make Genesis, in our opinion, a scientific manual that's going to give us the answers to all these questions. But as we looked at, when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, it wasn't to be a scientific journal. He was writing it as a historical journal for the Hebrew people to let them know that they were created in God's image to let them know that they were not meant to just live as slaves, that their lives had more purpose than that. And if we don't understand that worldview that Moses was writing in, you come up with all kinds of ideas about what Genesis means, and you come up with gap theories, and you come up with Nephilim, and we come up with where's the dinosaurs, and we come up with all these things that Genesis was not trying to talk about. And we end up missing the important things that are there. And I believe that there are some incredibly important things here in Romans that we need so much to understand, but we want to understand them in the right framework. Because after we talk about all these things, what we want to be able to do is go back to the text, read the text, and the text speak as clearly as it can to us without all of our added input. And so we want to look at the historical context and we want to look at Paul's worldview and those things. What the word of God means to Paul. What is this context? And again, that is one of the things that I've talked about, that frame or that terminology, the word of God. What does that mean in our Context. Well, now and today, the word of God, when you see Hebrews says, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. We take that as the word of God means the Bible. But if you think about it, when Hebrews was written, what we have as a Bible did not even exist. So how could the word of God mean the Bible? Right? And I've talked to people about this, and then they think I'm putting down the Bible. It's like, I'm not putting down the Bible. I'm just telling you that's not what it means according to the Bible. I've had one person say, well, it was being talked about prophetically. So when it says the word of God, they were talking prophetically that it was going to be about the Bible. And it's like, well, okay, you can. that's what we put on the table. That's, those are the things that we talk about on the table, but... 
I think at that point we get to discuss, okay, this theology that we're talking about, what better reflects what actually was written? That when Hebrews was talking about the word of God, that it didn't mean the Bible, or that when Hebrews was written and it talks about the word of God is alive and powerful, it actually meant something else. Perhaps what I believe it meant, the gospel. And so now we, we get to talk about these things because they're out there to talk about. We're not shutting the door on that discussion, but how people see those things in the historical context, that's there. We can't change history. As much as we try sometimes, we can't. And so you understand worldviews by looking at certain aspects of a culture. Understanding that aspect of the culture gives you an understanding of that worldview. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. What was Paul's worldview? Even as you might have, what's the worldview of a Muslim when they hear the word crusade? Right? To them, it means something else. And so when you have harvest crusades, but you put that terminology in a Muslim context, all of a sudden, crusades has a totally different meaning. Now, harvest has actually taken out the word crusades, at least in the last few years, and they just call it harvest. Because I think it had an understanding that there are a lot of people we are not reaching just because of that word, crusades. You see, that's a worldview that they have. Whether you agree with it or not, you're just seeing things the way they see it. You don't have to agree with the worldview, but that's how it is. The worldview has changed in California what it means to... To be a cool parent. We've talked about this before. You know, it used to be when I was a kid and you went to the beach, you could jump in the back of the truck. You get some pillows, put a little beach chair, and sit in the back of the pickup and drive down to the beach, and it was cool. You see that today. Yeah, they're calling child protection services, right? This parent is just being terrible. Why? Because the worldview has changed. It's just how the world is now. It's not the same world it was 30 years ago or more. It's changed. And so recognizing the worldview that Paul had is going to be real important as we understand that. It's the process by which our theory and our lesson is going to be embodied. And and so we're going to talk about some questions here. As we're looking at this book, we're going to talk about the exegesis. That's the critical explanation or interpretation of a text And here, let me write these down. If you want to write these down, exegesis, E-X-E-G. I wrote it down so I could write it. E-S-I-S, exegesis. And exegesis is the critical explanation or interpretation of a text. Okay, so that's one of the things that we need to look at when we're going through this book. The other is the theology, And we want to look at the theology that they had at that time. Theology is the Jewish theology, God and human beings, God and Israel, God and the world, God and the creation, the law, justification. That would be Jewish theology, the study of God. But at that time, especially in the Hebrew mind, those are the kinds of things that are being put on the top. We also want to talk about the history, and this is going to be a lot of what we talk about tonight. The history. Paul was not writing in a vacuum. What is the context? Now, when Paul was writing, it was a Greco-Roman world. 
It's an E. That's a mistake. <laughs> Greco-Roman world. And most people know what that means when we say Greco-Roman world. Well, Greece at one time painted the maps. Right? Alexander the Great in that 4th century BC, Greeks dominated the world so much that Greek was the common language for most of that region of the world that Paul was in up to the Mediterranean area. And so if it wasn't your first language, it was your second language or your third language. But almost everyone began to speak Greek because you had to if you were going to function in the world at that time. Much like English is the second language primarily in the world today or a third language. You go to most countries, you can find someone who speaks English because it's a predominant language. And it's not because of America. It's actually because of England, just for us to know. Okay, we're, we're kind of secondary in this area. We, we speak because of the language that we've inherited from the English. And so the Greco-Roman culture was the dominating culture at that time. And then around the second century, we see that Rome starts to take over. And so that inherits the Greek language, but it also starts to input its own rules and government. So now all those areas that were formerly under Grecian rule are now under the Roman rule. And so then we start to see a lot of those characteristics start to take place as they start developing. And the Roman culture is something that was worldwide at the time of Christ. And so Paul would be speaking Aramaic. He'd be speaking in Greek. He would understand written Hebrew. So then was Paul a Jew at heart, living out of a Jewish worldview and mindset, thinking as a Jew, writing as a Jew, relating to the world around him as a Jew? Because if you read Paul in this way, then you're going to think of him in the context and the interpretation of everything he wrote is going to have that mindset. But was that what Paul was doing? Was Paul primarily just a Jew relating to the world around him as a Jew? A lot of people think that there was no influence of the Roman Empire into the Jewish culture, but we know historically that's not true. Hellenistic views had permeated Jerusalem at that time. There were temples there in Palestine. There was gymnasiums that were there. There were a lot of things that they found that were a part of that culture. And so the Hellenistic view had entered into the Jewish area because Rome conquered everything. Or was Paul someone who was at home in that Grecian, Hellenistic, Roman mindset? Could Paul live there? If on the hand you read Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles who then translated everything into a Greek thought form, then your whole reading of his epistles will come out differently. And so was Paul just a Jew writing everything from a Jewish perspective or was Paul an apostle to the Gentiles and translating Jewish thought into an understandable language for those who were in the Roman world, in that Greco-Roman world. What do you guys think? Both. Both? How could he be both a Jew holding on to a Jewish background and be 
Jewish theology bringing it to a Greco-Roman world. In other words, how would he relate the Jewish traditions in just a Jewish thought? In other words, you can't really... It's not just Jewish only. Okay. Okay, so he started off with a Jewish theology, and then he's translating that Jewish theology into a way that the Roman world can understand and recognize. That makes sense? Okay, yes. Right. Well, he he would say to the Jew, I became a Jew, to the Greek, I became a Greek, a Gentile, I became a Gentile. And so he would speak to those different terms. Now, as he's writing the book of Romans, then we understand that he's not locked into just being a Jew who just saw the scriptures as the Jews see the scriptures, but he was trying to take the truth of the scriptures in the Jewish theology and bring them now into a Roman world where those who were not under the Jewish law could see the truth of who God was and who Jesus was. Well, and we're going to talk about there. They, yeah, what, what gods did they believe in? You know, if we don't understand that Paul was trying in this book, Romans, as well as in Corinthians, as he's talking to them, if we don't understand what he's trying to do, we come across passages and we think, what the heck is that about? Why didn't he deal with that? For example, in Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the resurrection. And then all of a sudden he says, well... You know, why would you baptize someone for the dead if there's no resurrection? And then you've got, like, the Mormons making a whole doctrine over the baptism of the dead. What is the baptism of the dead? Paul doesn't say. He doesn't talk about it. But we know from that culture it was a common practice of those who were in pagan religions. And so Paul addresses the futile of their belief, saying, why would you do this if there's no such thing? Why would you baptize people for the dead if there is no resurrection? And he doesn't talk about their, the problem of their belief. He just talks about the irony that they believe something and then they disbelieve something. And so there's a lot of times where Paul is addressing specific problems in that culture and in that belief system. And if we don't understand that and we think, well, it's just Paul talking in our terminology or an mindset or a reformation mindset or a purely Jewish mindset, then we have struggles with it because we're thinking, what is that about? What's he talking about? Why is he talking about this? But then we can take what he's actually trying to say and bring it there. See, Paul is addressing Romans the way he addressed all his audiences, a Jewish theology designed for a pagan world. Because I believe he was the apostle to the Gentiles, as he says. And because he is that, what he's doing then is taking this Jewish theology, presenting it to the pagan world. What then was the Jewish theology? Well, the Jewish theology, we talk about the Torah, the law, the covenant and its practices, Abraham, the promise to him and his descendants. Judaism was very unique. Judaism as opposed to the world. And we're going to talk about the gods of the world and the things that they believe. Judaism is what we would call monotheistic. Okay?
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Okay, the belief that God is one. Now, the Roman world was very different than that. And I'm jumping ahead of myself, so I've got to back up here. So, okay. We want to also look at, so what? Why did Paul write this book? We have to think of what there is a reason. And we're going to have to kind of go through a process before we get to some of the answer. There's a delayed gratification that needs to take place in this writing that we're going to go through. Everyone sees things through their beliefs, and we need to be able to talk about these things with one another without animosity, without being hostile towards each other, to decide what the truth is. And this isn't a matter of whatever you feel or believe is right. There's a place to discuss openly and be objective and engage in this public forum. One of the things that has taken place is when we start to disagree with someone and their belief system, when we say, well, you're seeing that through your mindset, and I don't believe that's the mindset to see it in, everyone starts to think, well, then anyone can have their own mindset, and that's right. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we want to discuss those things and find out what is true. Like I mentioned with the word of God and what that means. You see, too much of Christianity has been taken into this private form that says, this is our text and you can't speak about it. When I was talking in Mexico, one of the people asked and said, well, is it a problem that you would tell people that they should question the text and wonder what it means? Aren't they just supposed to believe it? And to me, that's a red flag. Because then who controls the belief? Right? No, just believe what I tell you. And that's enough. And Christianity has become very much that. Here's what we believe, and if you disagree with that, you become marked as a heretic in some way. Instead of questioning some of those things. Well, I have questions about this. We should question these things. It's not just our private little bubble that we're living in. And the book of Romans is meant to be discussed. We're going to have that discussion over the weeks to come. What did Paul mean? What was the context? Who was he speaking to? Why is he saying these things? We need to discuss those things so we can find out deeper meaning into what they mean. We need to listen to all of what Paul says so that we can get to what he is actually saying, not only to the people at his time, but to us. You see... I believe that Paul, who said he was the apostle to the Gentiles, spoke with this context in mind. So much of what has been written about Paul's writing comes from a mindset that he was just a theologian writing about justification, just the law, and all of those things, which would be a primary just Jewish mindset. If he was the apostle to the Gentiles, then when he was at Athens or Corinth talking to the folks, he was talking in the common language, common Greek. It wasn't even the educated, higher Greek language. He was talking in common speak, which is why a lot of people have a hard time, because it's almost like slang. Why we have a hard time understanding some of what he's saying because he's talking in a common language. It's like when we say, hey, that's cool. What does that mean? Well, when I say it's cool, I mean it's hot. Right? Well, we know what it means because in our language, 
we understand cool. Oh, yeah, that means it's really neat. Hot means it's really cool, right? It, it can mean the same thing, but cool and hot are totally different words. They're, they're supposed to be opposites. How can they mean the same thing? Groovy. Groovy. <laughs> Far out. Uh, now we're dating ourselves. So the idea that Paul is talking in language, when he went to Athens, when he was in Corinth, when he was making tents and talking to the common people, he was talking in their language, a language that they understood. And so... He wasn't speaking to them about the finer points of Jewish theology and whether they should keep the law or not. Instead, he was speaking to them about the questions that were in the pagan world in a way to connect them to the truth of the gospel from a place that they could understand. And that's what we see take place in Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 17. We've talked about this before. In Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 17, when Paul is talking to the Greeks, he never quotes the Hebrew scriptures. Because it wasn't a place that they understood. But he talks to them about the truth of the Hebrew scripture. He even uses their writings to bring about the truth of the Hebrew scriptures. And so we're getting insight into how Paul thought and how Paul worked with these things. And so... If you want to know the world that Paul lived in, the best way to understand is actually to educate yourself in the pagan thoughts of that day. And this is where there's been an incredible failure in, I believe, Christian thought. Because if you go to seminaries, they talk about the Hebrew thought, they talk about the scriptures, but no one talks really or discusses in depth what was pagan thought at that time. No one wants you to read Cicero's books, you know, on the gods or the nature of the gods, even though Cicero was written in that first century BC at a time, and he's an educated Greek who would talk about all the thoughts and beliefs of that time. But when you understand Cicero and his writings, you actually get insight into who Paul was talking to and why it was important to understand those thoughts. And so understanding these things is helpful for us to get the historical background and the worldview context. Incredible writings on this would be N.T. Wright. He's got a book, uh, The New Testament and Its Writers. Incredible book. Uh, N.T. Wright also has The uh, Scripture and the Authority of God, another great writing. Um, William Barclay has some great commentaries on historical things. I think N.T. Wright is a little bit more current than Barclay with some more information that gives us insight into the time. But these are things that I read and that you can read to help you understand when this was written, what was the mindset so we can clearly understand it. Because that's what we're trying to do is find out what was Paul saying? What was God saying through Paul? what's there for us to get from that because it's incredible how much information is going to be applicable to us. And so we want to understand what was the Roman mindset and what was taking place at that time. You know, we want to understand the, the major thoughts there and it was Epicurean and Stoic which Cicero talks about in his books. 
Stoics and Epicureans. This was basically the mindset of the Greco-Roman world. The Stoics, we'll write this, the Stoics believed that they could take God and the world and make them basically the same thing. Everything is God. You're God. The tree is God. We are all part of God. Now, the pagan world you know, defines everything as a God. The moon's a God. The sun's a God. The tree's a God. The God of the Nile, the God of this. But Stoics combined them where it made everything is God. We are all part of God. It's kind of like the force is with you kind of a mentality. But that was very prominent at that time. They may talk about God working in the world, which would make sense for that person who thinks that God is the world. But as you read some of the ancient le- literature, you see that they did just that, that you know, they talk about God in the world. And it was kind of like God is always at work. He's kind of out there somewhere working with us, in us, through us. All these things are taking place. Stoicism was a major thought in this world that Paul is now reaching out to. The Epicureanism, Epicureans, they believed that there are gods, but they're a long way off. So we have to work things out as best we can in our own way. Most modern or Western thought is Epicurean in nature because we believe, most people believe, well, I believe in God, but, you know, he's just not really there or active in our, our lives. And so these are the two thoughts that Paul is addressing at the time that he's trying to reach in these people. And so when someone, you know, comes up and they just say, well, I don't believe in God. What we usually do, or in Christian circles, is we start arguing why they should believe in God, but the odds are we don't even know what, they're, what God they're talking about. So when says, I don't believe in God, well, which God don't you believe in? And that usually throws them for a loop. Like, well, you know, the God who's out there in heaven somewhere and who's just looking down at us and judging us, you know, for the bad things that we do. Oh, I don't believe in that God either. All of a sudden, it's like, well, what's going on here? Well, you're not defining God as I understand it. You're not defining God as the monotheistic God that we know. You're really dealing with God more in an Epicurean way. And it's important to understand this because this is the people that God or Paul is addressing when he's talking to them in this way. And then there's, you know, new age forms that kind of develop some things out of there, a form of stoicism where everything or everyone has the divine in them. Everyone has the light. And again, it's a a tank. Everyone is God is different than God has created us in his image. Okay, there's a big difference. I'm not God, but I was created in God's image. And understanding the difference is important too. And so Paul was addressing a pagan world But what was he addressing the pagan world with? Again, Jewish theology designed for the pagan world. And so, what then is this Jewish theology? And we get to this monotheism. The belief that God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, the pantheists or the Stoics, they believed in maybe one God, but it's different. Well, everything's God and God is us. Well, that's one God. Or they can even be the Epicureans. Well, we believe in a God out there, 
But the idea of the monotheistic, the Jews were creational monotheistics, that there is one God who made the world and is dynamically involved with the world, but he is not the same as the world. The world belongs to or is accountable to God, and God takes responsibility and ownership of this world. And so the monotheistic Jewish belief believes that God is involved with, God is responsible for, and that this creation is also responsible to this God, which is very different than the Stoics who believe everything's God and it really doesn't matter if it's good or evil. It's really a matter of your thought, not whether it's right or wrong. The Epicureans, well, yeah, the world's evil because the gods are way far away and we've just made a mess of things. And then you've got the monotheistic thought of the Hebrew that's saying, no, God cares. God created and God is going to hold us accountable. And so now this God, the monotheistic God of the Hebrew is one who is engaging in the world that we live in. Now, that brings us to a problem. If this God created everything and everything is responsible and he's responsible, then what do we do with evil? How do we deal with the evil that is in this world? Again, the Stoics, well, it's your perception of things, the Epicureans, well, it's evil because we're here and God's far away. But the creational monotheists, you either think that God is bad because he's created this bad world, or that God is going to do something about evil. And what did the Jewish people believe that God, their God, was going to do about the evil? Because now we're going to start fine-tuning what Jewish theology is that Paul is going to bring to this pagan world. And so what do you think the Jewish theology was? What do you think their God was supposed to do about this world? and the evil that's there. Any thoughts? What is that word? Election. What God was going to do about the problem of evil in the world was raise up a people who could bring all the world to an understanding of who God is. Election is the call of Israel to be God's people for the world. Now remember, the worldview and the mindset, the historical context, when Paul was writing about election, he wasn't talking about, well, we as Christians are elect of God. He was talking about, first of all, that the Jews were called by God to be God's people, an example to the world around them. If we understand this, most of Romans is going to become very clear to us because the idea of election is going to be very important. The idea of covenant is going to be very important through this book. And if we don't understand that, we will get on some rabbit trails and start fitting things in again to our mindset and our worldview. Okay, so Paul criticizes Israel for forgetting their role. But God always saw his people to bless the other nations, right? He told Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we start to see this. And the story of Israel that Israel tells of herself is not very successful, right? I mean, you've got Abraham. Okay, God appears to Abraham. Great. But then they go into Egypt. And then they're slaves in Egypt. 
But then there's the exodus, there's Moses, and there's the deliverance, and God does a great thing. Amazing, but they give up this God for a golden calf, and they start becoming idolaters, and they start unbelieving, and so God has to wipe them all out in this desert because of their unbelief, and so they don't hold on to this heritage that is there. And then you have the time of judges where everyone did what was right in their own sight, but it leads up to the monarchy where now there is a king and it kind of culminates with David who is this amazing king who who unites Israel and brings Judah and Israel together and now you have this nation. But then David sins. He sins incredibly. And then again, we have the monarchy under judgment and then exile is underway. So the people of God, the children of Abraham, become what is known as the children of Adam. And the idea of exile is very important because when you're in exile, it is because of sin. It was because of their sin that they were brought into this place of bondage. And most first century Jews did not believe that the exile had come to an end. They believed they were still in exile. They were in exile with the Babylonians, with the Persians, with the Greeks, with Egypt, with Syria, and now in their time with Rome. And the idea of exile proved that they were still under the judgment. Because if you were free from exile, you would not have someone lording over you. And this exile was going to lead them to what we'll call the eschatology. There's why. Eschatology, the study of the last days. Again, in our mindset, eschatology is when Christ returns, comes for his church. We've got an eschatology that's distant, but in the Hebrew mind, eschatology was going to come when the exile was over, when they were no longer under someone else's rule. And that's very much on the mind of the people, the Jewish people at that time. And it's going to be central to Paul's theme throughout the book of Romans. Now, I'm giving you guys a lot of information, and I I don't know if your eyes are going to start glossing over saying, what the heck is all this about? But what I want you to see is that there is a reason and a method to go through and understand the things that are written here so that we can understand them correctly. A lot of people complain because the Bible is being used incorrectly by so many people. How do we know if it's being used correctly? Well, we have to understand the historical content. We have to understand the worldview that was being framed or that they were looking through when they were writing these things. And the eschatology is the tension between the covenant promise of God. I have set these people, the election of God's people, and the current political realities that they were in that seem to get stronger that we see the Jews holding on to this hope that one day soon God will liberate his people. But if there is to be a king, he needs to liberate his people. That's the eschatology. Someday the king is going to come and deliver the people. That's why in the Messiah they were looking for this redeemer. Why? Because it's a part of how they think. 
And so we see that election is very much an important part of this theological mindset. So we got the monotheistic belief, their theology. We've got the election, God's chosen people, the covenant that God makes with his people, exiles, the sin that they find themselves in. Eschatology is what God is going to one day do to deliver them out of this oppressive rule. And that's very much a part of Paul's whole thrust throughout the book of Romans. Eschatology is the proof that God has been vindicated. One day God is going to say, see, I am the true God, The Stoics, the Epicureans, all these other gods, they're false gods. They're not real. I have chosen people to to deliver the world from this mindset, from the sinful things. But how can that be when these people are still in exile? How can that be true if the people are still in this bondage that's going on? Because what good is forgiveness if you're still imprisoned? You know, it'd be like giving you a pardon. You're free, but you've got to stay in jail. What good is that? And that's where Israel finds themselves. They're still in exile. So how can they be the covenant people? How can they be the elect? How can their eschatology be fulfilled? We see this throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel 37, when he has the vision and the metaphor that, what do you see? I see a, a valley full of dead bones, which was unclean to Israel. And then God brings these bones to life and and flesh comes back on them. And it's not a talk of the apocalypse or the, you know, zombie apocalypse that's coming out. Again, remember your worldview, what you're seeing through. This isn't walking dead theology. What Paul is talking or what Ezekiel is talking about is here is a people who is in exile, a people who is under bondage. And God is going to resurrect. And this is the first time we see the understanding of resurrection taking place in the Hebrew people that is going to be fulfilled in the person of Christ. He's going to bring them back to life. Well, when is he going to do this? That's their question. How is he going to do this? That's what they want to know. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for this one who's going to deliver. They're waiting for God to bring them out of this place of bondage because we are God's people. How is Paul going to deal with people who have a mindset that we belong to God, we are God's people, but are living in exile? And why does Paul make this such an important thing? Have you ever wondered why don't we have to keep the Sabbath? Why can we eat lobster and fish and things that are not kosher? Why is that okay to do, but it wasn't okay for them? I thought the Sabbath would never end. There will never be an end to the Sabbath. How can those things be? You guys ever ask those questions or just me? Well, he said there would never be an end to the Sabbath, but we don't meet on the Sabbath. So is there an end to the Sabbath? Did something happen? How does this take place? Paul answers all these things through this epistle. And that's what we're going to get into. But we're going to have to wait because I'm not going to answer all your questions today. Because I'm going to probably raise more questions. I haven't answered any questions. All I've got is questions, right? See, if you were a Jew waiting for God to act in history, as he did in Moses or with Abraham and through his people, What are you appealing to? Are you appealing to God's goodness? God, you're good. I know you're going to act. You're you're involved. And we're waiting for a deliverance. Am I waiting for God's goodness? Well, no, not necessarily. Because God's goodness requires us to live good. And so 
I'm not depending on God's goodness because that might be the very reason I'm in exile. So what are we depending on? What we're depending on is the covenant faithfulness that God made to his people. And this is the springboard that we need to step on to go into Romans. That the God who is dynamic and alive, involved with his people, has set up a people, the nation of Israel, to be an example of who he was, but they didn't, so they went into exile. But the day is going to come when they will be out of this exile and God is going to deliver them. How is that going to take place? When is that going to take place? Because they're believing it's going to happen way over here in the timeline. You've got our timeline and it's going to happen here at the end. And what Paul is going to do is show us that it happened at the time of Christ. That what they've been waiting for, what God has called this people to, why they're dealing with sin and what are they waiting for, it happens in the middle. Not at the end. It happens in the middle of what they would expect. And what God does is he fulfills the promise because Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. And where they were connected to Adam, the last Adam is different. And this is Paul's important kind of foundation that he's going to set. And so we're going to be going through these things as we go through this epistle so that we understand what's being said. Because if you don't understand this, when you get into Romans 9, well, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Well, God hates Esau. Really? What does he mean when he says he hates Esau? He never told Esau that he hated him. Why does it say this in Malachi? Why does Paul mention this again in Romans? What is he trying to convey? He's trying to convey something to the people because God is going to bring them out of this exile. So it's not a matter of God hating some people and loving some others. And what is this predestination this is talking about? This eschatology that he's talking about? You see, if we don't understand the framework, then we're going to jump to conclusions. And the reason people take things that are in the Bible and make them so outlandish is because they don't look at the context. They don't look at the worldview that it was being written in, and they disregard all those things that are necessary to get clear understanding. And all of a sudden, you have thoughts going out here, thoughts going out there. Pretty soon, you got the zombie apocalypse. you got all these things being talked about. Why? Because you're not reading the text as it was written. You're not understanding it. And if you don't, you'll come up with some misconclusions. Any questions? <laughs> Is there going to be a test? Is there, no, there's not going to be a test. <laughs> now, I know we didn't open the book of Romans, and I talked a lot. I want you to think about what it takes when you want to study and share the things that are in Scripture. And I know I've talked to a few people about, well, they want to be teachers. They want to you know, be able to teach the Scripture and go through the things that are in there. To, to give the Scripture to people, we need to understand the Scripture and how it is written. And these are the things that I go through, maybe not every single time that Paul's epistle to Romans is very unique, but even when he's writing to the Corinthians or even when we're going through Genesis... I want to get to these things. I want to talk about historical context. I want to see what the worldview is. I want to know what's happening so that we can present it accurately. 
because we find ourselves in a very judgmental place. And a lot of times the reason the church is seen as so judgmental is because we look at the scripture not in its historical context and not through the worldview. And so pretty soon we're arguing with scientists in Genesis about evolution when Genesis was never written to argue with scientists about evolution. That's not its purpose. If you want to talk about creationism and you want to talk about you know, evolution, you can, but Genesis was not made for that. And then you find yourself in incredibly lacking information because it doesn't have a lot of information. I don't care if you go other places to get information. That's fine. But you've taken now a book that was intended for one purpose and made it your purpose. And that's just wrong. And we do that so many times to try and prove our point and we lose the meaning. I mean, Genesis is so rich with stories and theological truths, but they're all found in those stories. You don't look, well, let's look at lying in Genesis. No, you see how lie affected people. And that's the truth that you get from the stories. Well, we need to do that with all of Scripture. If you're going to be someone who brings the Scripture, you need to be able to look at these things. And it just takes time. I don't know the Greek. I barely know English. But I can read people who know Greek. I can read people who have understood, and who you read is very important. Again, most commentaries that are on the book of Romans, whether it be uh, McGee, whether it be MacArthur, whether it be John Corson, whether it be a lot of these people, their theology is coming from a worldview that is more from the Reformation than actually from the time that Paul was writing doesn't mean everything they wrote was bad. Just every now and then you'll get some things that, hmm, I wonder about that. Why doesn't that seem to fit with how Jesus spoke or what Jesus said? And if we don't understand those things, we can come to some conclusions that I think are a little skewed. Okay, did I bore everyone to death? No? Okay. <laughs> well, just wait, because next week, I don't know if we'll still get in the book, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the history and those things. It takes about an hour, well, it depends on which translation, how well you read. Probably take a good hour plus to read all of Romans. I encourage you all to read the book of Romans this week. If you can, read it a couple of times. But try and read the book of Romans every week that we're going through it. We're not going to spend a whole long time. We might spend, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 weeks, 11 weeks in the book. So I don't plan on going crazy in depth trying to find out. Again, I think we'll miss the meaning. But in the next few months that we do go through Romans, try and read the book every week. It doesn't take that much. So that we can get the context because... Paul is building a story and then he brings it to more of a conclusion. In fact, chapter 3 and chapter 9 are very closely related. The questions he asks in chapter 3 are the questions he deals with in chapter 9. But a lot of people don't connect those dots. And so read that chapter or those whole, whole book and then we can maybe get some context for those things. Okay? Okay. Thanks for bearing with me. I hope this doesn't bore you. <laughs>
Let's pray. Father, as we look at your scripture, Lord, it is with hunger, it's with thirst to hear from you. Lord, we do believe your words are alive, that they are breathed by you, and they are able to breathe life into us. And the truth that is revealed in this book is so important to us today. Lord, it revolutionized the church when Paul wrote it, and it can revolutionize our lives today if we would grasp hold of the truths. And so may we see it clearly. May we understand it fully as we can. May we enter it with inquisitive just desire to know, to find out. May we hunger and thirst to hear you speak in this book to our souls. And we thank you for the opportunity to talk about these things. Help me to stay clear and to be focused on the things that I'm sharing. Help me not to just be informational, but Lord, help me to try and help me to be a good teacher in instructing people how to learn, how to speak about the things that are in your scripture. And Lord, may it be useful to us, we pray. And I ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.